So we've been exploring this fall uh, series on kind of trying to get beyond our politics. And for me, I think I've talked before, like I've kind of stopped watching the news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you might consider a, a news fast for a while <laughs> yeah. to see if what you notice in your soul. Um, and what I'm kind of trying to do here is to begin to cause us to think and reflect on Christian culture of what it ought to begin to look like for us as Christians living in changing times. In particular, we're exploring the doctrine of the image of God, that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, and looking at what I see as being a number of applications of this doctrine uh, in our lives and in our culture currently, and how that comes to bear on several different conversations. And we've talked before about even the idea in our culture of human rights is founded on the Judeo-Christian idea that all humans have inherent dignity, value, and worth. And my question has been is like, where do we get that? That is, you know, why should we think that? If we're just highly evolved animals, where does our dignity come from? And as Christians, we would say it comes from our creator and that we are created in his image. And um, I was reflecting this week about, you know, what's my big picture? I, I, uh, one thing I like to ask, a question I like to ask a lot is, what am I intending to cause? You ever ask that question? What am I intending to cause in this conversation right now? What am I intending to cause with this person? I, I find that a, to be a very helpful question, is what am I intending to cause? Am I intending to cause compassion with this person? Am I intending to cause freedom Am I intending to cause forgiveness? I like to ask myself that question a lot of what am I trying to do here? Because I find that it helps to clarify the moment for me, especially if I'm in a very difficult conversation. I like to have a, a little internal conversation with myself. Uh, maybe with my, when I'm in a difficult conversation with my teenager, what am I intending to cause here? <laughs> because I want, you know, what do, what do I want the outcome of this discussion to be? And so I was thinking about that this week as, what am I intending to cause in this series of conversations? And one of the things I'm trying to cause is an exploration of contemporary applications of the historic Christian doctrine of the image of God. That's really what this is, is I'm trying to look at all of these contemporary little issues in light of this beautiful doctrine that all humans uh, are made in the image of God and as such uh, have dignity, value, and worth, because I think this is just such a relevant uh, doctrine. And, and as we do that, I want us to understand what it means to be a Christian and from a Christian worldview standpoint, because I think there's actually many assumptions in our culture that are actually based on the Christian worldview, mm -hmm. only they're borrowing our worldview, <laughs> And as they move away from our worldview, this is why I think we see so much more chaos in our culture, is that there has been kind of this long-standing, uh, silent borrowing that our culture has done of the, of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And this is the, the doctrine of the image of God. What's beautiful about this is that this is a, a doctrine that crosses all lines as Christians, even my Catholic and my Orthodox friends. This is a core value of what it means to be a Christian. And when we think about Christian culture, this is what I am trying to 
provoke our thinking about is, is historically what has Christianity look like and get out of our American little bubble a little bit and to get into something broader and more global and more historical. So uh, that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm attempting to do here. So uh, today we're going to be talking about a very important question on the dignity of work. And that work is an inherent part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And so we're also going to outline kind of a paradigm. This is sort of the new part of the lesson that we'll keep revisiting in in coming weeks. Is that the paradigm of scripture is that of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And when we think about scripture, it's important to think in those big buckets of who we are and where we are in that timeline. So let's start with creation here. When we think about the the creation, when it comes to being created in the image of God, we've read this verse many times already in our series from Genesis chapter 1, that God has made mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And that we are a reflection. We talked the first week about how in ancient times, the king would leave behind a likeness of himself among the people. And that that's what we are. We are that likeness. And we are his representatives to rule and reign on the earth. Now, another critical passage to look at is Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him to work in the garden, to put him in the garden to work and to take care of it. You see, to work is part of what it means to be a human person. It is inherent to how God has set up and designed us. He has designed us to work. And from the beginning, the whole reason he put Adam in the garden was to work the garden. And he had tasks that he assigned him to do. He says it is not good for the man to be alone. Because up until now, the Lord's told us many things that were good. He created the land. He created the plants and he said, and it was good and it was good. And then we get to chapter two and he says, and it was not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. He needed a helper. And we're going to talk more about this word helper next week when we talk about uh, the dignity of the woman. He makes a helper for Adam. And what's interesting about this word is that it connotes construction. It connotes that he's, he's forming something. He's making something. This is a word that's often used to construct something. And he's, he's really intervening in the creation to cr- construct something special in the woman that is just right for the man so that they can work together to accomplish the mandate of ruling and reigning on the earth and that they are partners together and that he makes this helper. So even we see in these verses that God is working, right? He's a worker. He works. For six days, you shall do all your labor and do your work. And, he, and God compares his work week to our work week. 
in six days he created everything and then on the seventh day he rested. And he's created that, set up and designed that rhythm and rest for us as well because we are made in his image and we reflect him. And this is how he has set things up from the beginning that we ought to rest. So God works and we work as his creation. And even in the New Testament, work is a, is a critical thing, even in the early church. It says in 2 Thessalonians 4, even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. Mm-hmm. See, uh, laziness is not a Christian virtue, but it's because this is how God has made us. It's not a command, we do it just out of duty. It's part of intrinsic to our being. And if you've ever done very fulfilling work, you know this, right? Because when you do very fulfilling work, it feels like it's not drudgery, right? Because it feels like this is part of my soul. This is an expression of how God has made me, right? So in creation, what we learn is that God works and we work. That everyone was created to work, and work is part of what it means to be a human. And also, I would add here that we were also made to create. That part of being made in his image is that we have creativity. Now, some people are more creative like artists. Some people are just really creative problem solvers. You ever know someone that has creative ideas and solutions to things? That's another form of creativity. You know someone who is very creative in how they can fix things. You know, they're just people who know how to fix stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And they can figure that out. That's another form of creativity. But when we are engaging in creative activity, we are reflecting the likeness and image of God. We are doing what we were made to do. And oftentimes in jobs where we don't feel very fulfilled, it's often because we just don't have a chance to be very creative or to use our minds or to to operate in the way that God has designed each of us as individuals. So that creativity can look like a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be just art. But that there's, when we engage in the way that God has set us up, it is highly fulfilling, isn't it? I think it's interesting that even Jesus was a man of physical labor. Have you ever thought about this? He was a carpenter. He was a man who worked hard. And he was a man who probably had dirt underneath his fingernails and cuts on his hands. He was a tradesman. And he was not a professional rabbi. He was not an academic. He was a a man who was a hard worker. We would call him in our vernacular, he was a blue-collar guy. He was a tradesman. And so Jesus is our savior, is just even somebody that we can look at and emulate, that there is, there is dignity in hard work. There's dignity in being a tradesman. There's dignity in being a blue-collar guy or blue-collar gal. But something has gone dreadfully wrong, right? We don't all have satisfaction in our work. Do we? Some of it feels like drudgery, right? What has happened? And that is the fall. The fall has happened and has complicated things. Now, at the fall, the image of God still remains in us, but it has been marred. 
It has been, it has been scarred, if you will. So we read in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And you made them to rule over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. So even after the fall, we still are created in the image of God. We still have this mandate to rule the earth. We are still created a little lower than the angels. But things have become much more complicated. And we see in the fall, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and see what happens there. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we have the curse. After the man and the woman choose sin, after they're deceived by the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Here we have difficulty between the man and the woman now as a result of the fall. And anyone who's ever been a man or a woman, and (laughs) you know that this is a truthism, right? This is a truthism. There is difficulty between the man and the woman, right? One is trying to get control over the other one. And the other one's trying to get control over the first one, right? This is what we do all the time. This is a result of the fall, right? To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. You will return to the ground since from it you were taken. And for the dust you are and to the dust you will return. So Adam doesn't become a farmer as a result of the curse. He was already a worker. Mm-hmm. Rather, he gets in an adversarial relationship with the land. Something has changed where his work is going to be less fulfilling. It's going to be harder. For the woman, the pain will be harder in childbirth. <clears throat> for the man, the work will be harder for him. And so some, there's some kind of breakdown in the fall between God and humans, between humans and each other and between humans and our work and the land. So we have those three impacts of the fall. And it's going to be much harder. You know, God set up this beautiful garden in the beginning. And then what does he do? We read in chapter 2, he places the man there. The man doesn't make that garden. But now he's gonna, God's going to throw him out of the garden, and he says, basically, go make your own garden. By the sweat of your brow, you will do this. And, you know, he's, it's not going to be um, as beautiful right from the get-go. The man has to go now and out and do these things. So we have this adversarial relationship with our work now. It's much harder. So between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation 21, the earth is in a state of corruption. It's broken. Something is out of kilter. It's filled with people. And people... We are created in the image of God, but we are capable of great beauty and great wretchedness, are we not? Because we still maintained the image of God. 
that is still there. That great beauty is still there, but we have been marred by sin. And this is the state that we are in when we see the events in Las Vegas, a way of seeing those events through the lens of what we've been talking about in class is that there was great evil there. Humanity is capable of, of wretchedness, but there was great beauty in the people who helped each other, who saved each other, who acted altruistically. They gave their lives much like Jesus gave, laid down his life. See, there's, there's great beauty in us and there's great wretchedness in us. We worship the Lord with our tongue and then we speak wretched things about our neighbor, James says. So this is the fall. This is the, the, the situation that we are in and that forces that work, there are forces that work against God's purposes. We live in a fallen and broken world And we cannot expect a life without toil. But I want this point to be very clear. Work is not part of the curse. Okay, we're going to say that again. Work is not part of the curse. Can I get an amen? Work is part of the creation. Can you see how this paradigm is so helpful to understand? Now, how many of us relate to our work as if it's a curse? Oh, no, it's Monday tomorrow once again. You know, we've got the grind, right? But work is not part of the curse. Now, the curse affects our work. It complicates our work. It sometimes makes our work more difficult. It makes us work harder to get results. But we were made for work. But there are hindrances. So when we go to the workplace, fear and suspicion has, mis- has replaced trust and love. How many of you ever worked in a workplace where you have fear and suspicion? Yes. You, you sus- you're like, I don't know, are they talking about me over here? What does that look like? What's happening with my supervisor? Why are we having this conversation? Am I about to be written up? There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of fear, right? This is all fruit of the fall with the complication of human to human interaction this is part of the fall workplaces today sometimes reflect the alienation between workers making our work even more toilsome and less productive you ever been in a season at your workplace where the relationships are harder than the work yeah And the relationships are more draining than the work. You know, I've been in those seasons in my job. It's hard. Sin has a direct effect on our work. And it, it, it is, makes it very hard. Now, as a little side note here, it's interesting that after the flood of Noah, and there's, I don't have time to go into this, but you can go back and look at our series on Genesis, of the parallels between Adam and Noah. And God gives the same commands to Noah that he gives to Adam when he's going to replenish the earth. But what's interesting is God says also, he makes this additional statement. He says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And so what God's basically saying here is that 
When you destroy the image of God, when you kill someone, you're not just attacking that person. You're attacking the image of God in that person. And that this has classically and historically um, in uh, Judaism and in Christianity has been the foundation for ideas behind capital punishment is because you are robbing that person. It's actually a form of breaking the commandment, you shall not steal. The ultimate thing you can steal from someone is their life because you're taking away their ability to work. And by taking away their ability to work, their family can't be supported. Their wife and their children will go into poverty more than likely. And so stealing a man's life is to to attack the image of God in him. So to attack a person is to attack God through his image bearer. Uh, I think that's a, it's an interesting aspect of the image of God concept and uh, why the, the um, notion of work is so intrinsic to us. Now, we have the creation, we have the fall, and then we have redemption. Redemption is the third great theme of scripture. And so we want to begin to explore how redemption applies to our work. God has called his people to many different roles and occupations on the earth. Have you ever noticed that? Like he doesn't say like, my people shall only be carpenters because I was a carpenter. No, it's, it's that there is a diversity of occupations that people are called to. Why? Because our, our big goal is that we're trying to rule the earth. We're trying to subdue the earth. That's, that's what we're up to. And that takes a lot of occupations. If we were all the same thing, that wouldn't work, right? So we need each other. In all these roles and occupations, we live out the greatest commandment, love our neighbors as ourselves. Have you ever thought about how your work is, ought to be an expression of love? A Christian view of work as a Christian, and here again, we're going back to what I was mentioning earlier, as I'm trying to build a vision for us as a Christian culture and how that's different than our American culture or some other culture if you're bicultural, that in a Christian culture, we ought to think about our work as an expression of love, that we do it because we love our neighbor as ourself. It says in Matthew 22, uh, about the two great commandments, love your neighbors as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, yeah, and then Colossians 3.23. This was a verse that my mother often liked to tell me as a child. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So when you're slacking on your job, checking social media, you know, would you do that if your boss was right there? You want to be zealous for your job as unto the Lord, that you're working as if the Lord is watching you, and he is. <laughs> so that in Christian culture, Christians ought not to be known as lazy people. They ought not to be known as people who try to escape work. Rather, they ought to be known as people who work hard and see their work as an expression of their love for their neighbor. That's a distinctly Christian 
way of seeing our work. Now, I'm going to tell you about some dirty dishes. I have several good friends who are stay-at-home moms. I've had three of them tell me lately that the task they hate the most is doing the dishes. I don't know why. I don't really mind doing dirty dishes, but for them, that's like they'd rather do anything else than do the dirty dishes. So that was the example that I picked. But if you think about the tasks around the house, these are an expression of love for your family. It's not just about the dishes. The dishes is just the task itself. But when you look at the dirty dishes from the point of view of being a Christian, it's an expression of love that you have for your family. And it's to serve the family when you do dishes, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter. In our house, there's just jobs to get done, and whoever's doing them, bless them, <laughs> you know? And uh, we're going to all share the load, if you will. And, uh, but whoever is doing the dishes is serving the other people in the family. And that's a task of dignity. And just as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he wasn't above that. Nobody should be above doing a job. It should be looked upon as being an act of service and love for our family. And that there should be joy in that on some level to know that that helps our family. Now, when it becomes complicated is when we feel like people are ungrateful, when we feel like we're being taken advantage of. But that's a sin problem, right? And so maybe we need to have different conversations with our spouse about boundaries or job assignments or negotiating. But if we were to look at the dirty dishes from a creation standpoint and from a redemption standpoint, that's an act of service and of love for our family. Yeah, one of the memories I have um, is my boss, Hugh Ross. I mean, he's, here he is, the president of this international ministry, and he is such a servant. I've worked book tables with him. Book tables is Working book tables at a ministry is a job for volunteers. It's for unpaid people. And there's Hugh Ross standing there, taking money, answering people's questions, and, and just serving, boxing and unboxing books, talking to people. That's, that's, to me, that's humility. My, my coworker was just saying yesterday, one of her first memories of Hugh is after we had had a little talk in the conference room at our old office here on Arrow Highway, uh, she saw Hugh uh, winding up the cords afterward from the mic cables. And she's like, Hugh, why are you doing that? He's like, because it needs to get done. <laughs> and that's an act of service. Nobody is above serving. That's a distinctly Christian ideal. So yesterday I was at uh, Del Taco um, getting some tacos, and there was this uh, young man serving me uh, in the drive-thru, and he was uh, getting me uh, some tea, and he, he noticed that the sides of my cup, the tea had spilled out all over the sides of my cup, and before handing it through the window, he took a minute to get some napkins and to wipe my cup. I thought that was the most beautiful example of what I'm talking about, of treating others the way you want to be treated. Do you want to get a wet cup in your car and then it's just getting tea all over the place? No. He took the time to love me in that moment and to treat me the way he would want to be treated. 
any job that we do is an expression of love. It can be. It has the potential to be. You ever go to Walmart and they have those greeters? Some greeters are better than others. <laughs> some you really feel welcome. Some they're just kind of sitting there on, on the side on a chair collecting a paycheck. And they're just like, huh. <laughs> you know? And then you have the ones that are like, wow, we're so glad you're here today. Thank you. You know? Every act of service can be looked upon as being an act of love. So there's dignity in all work. And this is a distinctly Christian idea. It's not in, well, we're only going to look at the people with important jobs. That's who we're going to pay attention to, that there's dignity for all jobs. Everyone is invited to belong to Christ and participate in his creative and redemptive work. And I say everyone, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the idea of common grace, that this is the type of grace that God extends to everyone in society. Everyone can have a job, and they can play a role, and they can help us with subduing the earth. Okay, that's, that's the idea of common grace. Now, we don't all show up that well. some of us don't work very hard, but that is the potential of what God has called us into as humans because part of what it means to be a human is to work. Now, those who don't know Christ can, can still participate in this work to some degree through common grace. Now, we're all invited to belong to Christ, right? We're all invited into saving grace, but not all of us accept that invitation. So not all of us are going to see our acts of service as love. But we as Christians, I think, ought to. We ought to see our job as love. Finally, we want to talk about glorification, which is the next great theme of Scripture. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. At some point, God is coming back. Amen? Amen. Yeah? And I'm looking forward to that more and more every day. <laughs> the chaos in our world, right? Yeah. As we're here toiling and subduing the earth, we look expectantly for the return of Christ. And we look forward to that day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we only get like a little glimpse of what that might be. But what I think is interesting is in Isaiah 65... There's, there's actually very similar wording. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The formal, former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And notice a few verses later. What's interesting to me is that Isaiah seems to have some picture of the, that the Lord is giving him of the new heavens and the new earth that um, is kind of a reversal of the curse, if you will. He says, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Notice he sees this picture. We're still all farmers. We're still all working. No longer will they build houses for others to live in them or plant and others eat. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands and they will not labor in vain. So in the new creation, whatever that looks like, I think there's going to be some kind of work involved because we are humans and work was there before the fall. And that I think that what 
the hint is here is that we will do something in the new creation. We will be working because that is intrinsic to who we are. And we've looked at um, these other passages before, and this is just my kind of speculation from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, that we will reign with Christ. I think that part of our work is that we will reign with Christ. That's a job. We will reign with him. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know if I'm going to be a governor or I'm just going to be over a house. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I'm going to be doing something to reign with Christ and that that is part of my destiny. Revelation 25, it says that we will reign forever and ever. We will be doing something in the new creation. I don't think it's going to be all just like sitting around in clouds with harps. I think we're going to be working. We're going to be doing something productive because that is part of what it means to be human. I think we'll just be in our glorified state of humanity. We won't have the sin curse complicating things anymore. In 1 Corinthians, it, it alludes to the fact that someday we might judge angels. I have no idea what that means. I wish Paul, Paul, why didn't you tell me more? What does that mean? But I think that there's something there that we will be up to in the new creation. Now, when we talk about work, there's a couple of vices that we want to think about avoiding. And this is all very cultural to our own American culture. I think there's different vices in different cultures. But in our culture, the two vices are laziness and workaholism. These are the two extremes of the spectrum, right? We have a lot of wealth in our culture. And wealth means that we have more free time. Because we have more appliances. I just talked to my grandmother about <laughs> living in a sod house in North Dakota in the Depression. She didn't have a lot of like hand mixers and dishwashers, right? But she had kids. She had kids. <laughs> and I, I remember I used to ask her, like, Grandma. She great dishwasher. Yeah. I remember asking her, Grandma, when you were living in the sod house and you had a dirt floor, like, did you ever sweep it? You know, how did that work? She says, oh, yeah, we would sweep it. I said, you swept the dirt. I'm just not picturing this. But my grandparents were hard workers. And they came from a, a time and a culture that valued work. My grandfather, uh, during the Depression, my, my grandmother told me once that my grandfather had a hard time finding work. And so to support his family, he would um, go and dig ditches for a dollar a day. And to, that's some backbreaking work. That's a man of the soil. And, um, you know, he was an educated person. He had a college education. He had been a teacher. But he wasn't afraid of work to support his family. Um, so we want to embrace work, but we also want to avoid the extremes of laziness. You know, the Bible has actually a lot to say about laziness in the wisdom literature. And this is a very important thing for us to Consider how we are in our own lives and um, how we talk about this with our children and how we raise them. And workaholism, boy, I see this so much uh, in my peers that, you know, that they're, it's hard. And, you know, in some jobs, the grind is relentless. It's hard to have good boundaries. 
But a distinctly Christian view of work involves having a Sabbath, having a rest. That God has not created us to work all the time. My Sabbath is on Saturdays. It's from like sundown on Friday around 5.30-ish through Saturday. That's, so it's like I don't, I don't do ministry on Saturday. I don't work on prep for the class. I don't pray for anyone. It's just that's, that's my time. And boy, is that like miraculous. It's almost supernatural. <laughs> Maybe because that's how God set it up. <laughs> and when I don't do that, when I'm not vigilant about keeping that time, my life feels disorderly. My weeks feel long. I feel chronically tired. So, you know, I don't think God's going to get hung up on what your day is. I don't think that's the point. The point is, is taking proper rest and not being so married to your job that there's, there's never any time to breathe or reflect or be with the Lord. Um, so hard work is good, but, you know, too much work is too much. So it's, we need to be very circumspect about that. And then in, in America, we're so affluent that we have this curious practice called retirement, where we actually have an end goal in our life to stop working. This is very interesting to me, because this is not altogether, I think, a biblical idea. If we're created to work. Now, our work might change. We might retire from a job and then get a pension, and then we have like the opportunity to do other kinds of work. But we want to keep working. We want to have value and to contribute value to subduing the earth. And there is great uh, work that can be done as we get older. Uh, my mother is a wonderful testimony of this. Has helped me so much with homeschooling my children. She almost had like a second career after teaching for 40 years. And then helping uh, with the homeschooling of my children. And helping me in just in everyday things when I was so sick for so long. And some days I would just need her just to help me cope with my life because I was so sick. And when, you know, being disabled for 30 years and for most of that, I didn't know I was disabled, but boy, I had a hard time coping with my life. I couldn't have made it without my mother. And she retired on the day that Emily was born. And that was a wonderful blessing. So I'm not saying your job has to be formal, but I'm saying don't start thinking like I have nothing to contribute because I'm older. You know, that's, that's not what God wants you to be up to. That's just waiting to die. That's just waiting to die. <laughs> Carmen is my hairdresser. She was sharing with me the other day about how her dad comes over and helps her around the house with work that, that she needs help with. And, I mean, that's a beautiful gift that he's giving her. We don't think just because you're older and retired, like, hey, I'm done living. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can still do some things, and you can talk to that. So here's a question is, how can we think about raising our children with a good work ethic? This is a, this is a, a hard question because we live in a culture that wants to cultivate comfort and, may I say, laziness and ease, that things should come easy for people. So I'm just wondering, I've got some parents in here who kind of maybe have reflected on this a little bit. Like, what do you do to help? your kids to develop a work ethic. I'm just, don't give them everything. Don't you give them everything. Model it. If you don't what? model it. Okay. You have to, you have to model it. Yeah. 
responsibilities like I can't tell you. Well, there has to be consequences. And yeah, and that's such an important issue of like teaching them the responsibility and that they have to pick up their own stuff because, like, I there's some some sometimes I observe people like mothers who clean their rooms for their children. They're adult children. <laughs> They're adult children. <laughs> I'm like. What are we teaching them here? Yeah. Like, what does that start to look like? You know? Um, how? Because my kids, if you go back, remind me to this day, we had to do our own laundry when we were being alive. Yeah. My boys were 10. And, you know, did and you know how to do it, don't you? <laughs> I think it's important to work with them too, alongside of them. That's a great my thing. Dad would, we had to work on the farm, and my dad would work with us. So we can see how to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> When my children were younger, I would help them clean their room. We would do it together, and it would be a conversation as we talk about concepts like sorting things or not just throwing everything under the bed. Uh, <laughs> it's clean. But doing it together, I think, is a, is a great way of teaching our children how to do it. Yeah. My husband used to take the kids to work with him because he owns his own business or owns his own business, so... He'd take them and put them to work in the warehouse part or take them in the car all day long, you know, when they Very were good. out of school to see what he did to earn the money that they got to enjoy their fruits of. Very good. Yeah, thank you for saying that. That's, that's what I was, I agree with working alongside and having them do their own laundry and that but I bring them to the salon so they can see. They get free Wi-Fi while they're there. <laughs> Yeah. One of the, uh, most of you know that I've, I've made comments before about my father, how he wasn't really much value in my life. But the, one of the things that he did that was very valuable to me is that when I was 13 years old, he gave me a job at his company because he owned his own business. He paid me $2 an hour uh, to fold boxes. And I would fold, stand in the shipping room and I would fold boxes all day and I would stack them up to the ceiling in all these little columns hundreds of them. I was bored out of my mind doing this. And when, when, the, when all the boxes were folded, then my sister, who also worked for him, would have me um, file things in alphabetical order. And that was just mind-numbingly boring, too. So then in the afternoon, my sister would come in the back and shipping. She would take down all the boxes I had just folded, put stuff in them, and then we would ship them all out to the the clients, the products to the clients. And then I had to do it all over again the next day. And I worked there the whole summer, like eight to eight to five. And yeah, for a 13 year old. And after like the first week or two, I finally went and had courage and talked to my dad. And I said, this is really boring. Is there anything else I can do? And he's sitting there smoking a cigarette and he puts it down and he says, no. Because this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life if you don't get an education. <laughs> I got the message. <laughs> going to get straight A's in school. I think it's very good. Like, it's, like, I remember my cousin working at the 
worked for his dad, has his own business, and he was, he was a contractor, and he swept floors, and he cleaned the construction site, and he got paid, you know, yeah. so many dollars now. Then they would go to lunch, and he would have to pay for his own lunch. Well, yeah. he liked to go big, because they were, you know, Tokyo Waco, <laughs> he wants three salads, and blah, 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 and then he realizes... He didn't even make enough money that day to <laughs> pay for his lunch and he got over his dad. He had to work the next day for free so he exactly. could pay for his lunch from the day before. So <laughs> it really, to see how, yeah. how easily it's dished out and how hard it is to make it. Yeah. And then to remind the kids that there's taxes involved. I mean, Dave Ramsey, you yeah. really diligent at my house. And I say, you know, here, this is what I got for a for restaurant today, you know, and this is what we're, you know, and so I let them know that this is, you know, this budget. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do credit cards. Yeah. If you can't afford it, you don't get it. Yeah. And our, our, my husband has a small side business, and he's incorporated our kids into that from a young age, and they get paid for that. It's not slave labor, but they, uh, they, they definitely get paid for that. But, but then there's the expectation that they have to pay for stuff, you know, that if they're going to do something, that that's part of it. So I think that this is, these are all good thoughts. Hopefully sharing these can help spark your thinking about what you can do in your, in your own life and uh, as you're raising your kids. How do we affirm human dignity while helping the poor? I think this is a very important question in our culture. A, a, an important application that I wanted to make from our conversation today. Because if we're making the assertion that Part of what it means to be human is to work. And if somebody, through maybe even no fault of their own, just has fallen on hard times, and, um, you know, how, what's the best way to help them? And this is, a, this is a very tricky question, I think. And there's a lot of good books written about this. This is just one that I'm highlighting because it's a classic. It's a modern classic called The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olasky. And in that, he talks about how Americans are just an exceedingly generous people, but sometimes we're not generous in the right ways that really benefit the poor. And boy, is this a difficult conversation to have. Sometimes um, I, I struggle with this because I'm, you know, there's, we have such big hearts as a culture, and we really want to give to people but when I want to have like the exceedingly annoying conversation of, let's make sure we're helping people well. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes people aren't as excited about that as I am. They just want to give money. And I'm like, well, let, can we just maybe have a discussion about how to help the poor in a way that doesn't violate their dignity? And, and maybe if there's some things we could do to tie it to work. And... That's not to say that sometimes there are triage situations where people need immediate help. They're living on the street. They need immediate care. But the best, I think, long-term solutions to truly helping the poor ought to be tied to work. And that's not to say, like, there is a whole class of people in our culture called the working poor who do work. And they work hard. But they can't make a sustainable living. And those are, are people that I think we ought to help if they're working hard, they're doing a job and they're, you know, as we said earlier, you know, they're loving their neighbor through their service and we help them. That's Christian too. I'm not saying we don't help people, but if they're working to me, that's all the more reason that we ought to be helping them. 
But we don't want to violate people's dignity either by robbing them of the opportunity to work, by just giving them stuff. That's, that's really what I'm talking about. My, my grandfather, I know I talk about my grandfather a lot, but it's just because he's like a man that I deeply admire. Um, uh, when he was, uh, my, he, w- he would always be building churches because uh, he was a church planner. Well, there's always work to be done when you're building a church. My grandfather always had a building program. When he wasn't building a church, he was building a house to live in. And uh, so there was always work to be done. And um, when they lived in Reseda, uh, they lived near the train tracks. And uh, it's sort of a politically incorrect term to use now, but hobos would come by. Uh, and uh, now we call them homeless people. <laughs> so, yeah, way better. Yeah, sociologically disadvantaged. But... Um, the hobos would come by, and, and because it was a church, they would knock on his door, and, and they would want food or money. And my grandfather was a very generous person, but he, he would always make them work first. And there was always work to be done. And if there wasn't work to be done, he would invent some work. There's always a ditch to be dug. And so, you know, he, he always told me, he says, well, I always found out real fast, like, who, who the serious people were. You know, and that if they would show up and they would do the work, then he would, he would give them food and, and feed them. So if we're going to have a distinctly Christian approach to helping the poor, we want to make sure that we're not robbing them of their dignity. And we're, we are providing a way for them to be taken care of. But whenever possible, we want it to be tied to work. So I'm going to um, play a video clip right now of... Um, a mission project, and this is, these are things that are kind of on the rise, and our church has done this before, of microfinancing, where we're helping poor in other places to um, build a sustainable business. Because a business is a way that that poor person can continue to earn a living for their family. And that, I think, is a wonderful Christian ideal of how to help the poor. Because you're tying it to the work and you're giving them a sustainable way of um, continuing to help themselves. So go ahead and play the clip. Microloan program in Leon, Nicaragua is economic security for people that live in a country where unemployment is rampant and runs at 50 to 60 percent. We empower people with a hand up as opposed to a hand out for a sustainable small business that will provide for their family for years to come. The Sevilla family is a collection of a father and mother as well as some sons who own a bakery in Leon called El Shaddai. They have a very large oven in the back, which is about the size of a medium-sized car. We have a family-owned business. In that time, our country was suffering some earthquakes. We have an oven where we make the bread, and in that time, the oven fell down. 
it was destroyed because of the earthquakes. In that time, we talked to our pastor, Oscar Perez. We talked to him about our bad situation we were having in that time. And he talked to us about the microloan program of the 12 churches. And he said that in this program, people can receive loans to people who is suffering bad situations. The bakery means something very good because it allows us to provide for our children and also serve the community by delivering the bread. This business has 12 families that depends from these 12 employees. If this business wouldn't exist, we can imagine 12 families and their kids without having to eat, without bringing the food to their homes. That would be a total disaster internally and emotionally. The Sevillas are a very uh, thankful family. You can tell God plays a daily role in their life. They, they realize the importance of the loan and the importance of paying it back on time every time so that we can reloan the money to other small businesses in the community and, and we thank them for that. We thank God and to this group of brothers that are here visiting us because that means that they care of us. It is a blessing. Also thank God because all my family and I are getting closer to the Jesus Christ and we have a big group of my family in the church learning about God and that there is he's the only one so do you notice how they even talk about the bakery it's like loving your neighbor mm -hmm. that the importance of having bread isn't just for the business but that they're bringing that food to the community and if that wasn't there it would be as he said a disaster for those other families so really these are something so simple as having bread if you th start thinking about it from a, in a distinctly christian way is a way of loving our neighbor. And so I hope that this kind of will spark your thinking about your work and maybe encourage you to think about what you do as being a way of loving people and that you will begin to think about um, these matters just from more of a worldview standpoint and have a bigger picture than just the daily grind <laughs> of the fall. Don't focus on the fall. Focus on the redemption and what Jesus wants to do through you and that it's really intrinsic to who you are and how God has set things up that uh, we should work. This is, a, this is a very Christian way of thinking. And I just wanted to take the time to explain why we do it this way, why this is noble, and that this is a very deeply Christian idea and that other people in our culture might borrow our ideas but this is from the Bible. This is the long history of what it means to be a Christian, is that how we help the poor and how we work is a reflection of our love. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you have created us to work. And Lord, I ask that you would build in our hearts a vision of our destiny that we have been created to work and that someday we will rule and reign with you. And that it's just part of what it means to be human. And in the meantime, as we're here and the curse is before us, that we will look for redemptive moments to be able to truly love our neighbor as ourselves and then not to get focused on the curse and the impact of the curse, but that we can be lights 
in the world for um, what you are trying to build of your kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. May the culture of heaven come down and be made manifest through each of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.